Bibles with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 37. Uh, we're going to be reading verses 12 through 36, but we're going to be doing a nutshell of Joseph's life. And if you happen to not like Joseph as much as me, and you're a Moses person, we're going to be referring to Moses a little bit too here. Starting at verse 12, now his brothers went to pasture, their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, and he said to him, here I am. And he said to him, go, now see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring the word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And so Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him, throw him into the pits, and then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to him, Shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of the hand and restore him to his father. And so Joseph came to his brothers, and they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brother, What does it profit us if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let our hand go upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then... Then the Midianite traders passed and drew him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that his brother Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his robe and garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol for my son mourning. Thus 
his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. So when I was a teenager growing up in church, there was this little story that went around, a little joke. And it was told differently each time. Um, the, the person and uh, the sequences of it changed. But anyway, it went something like this. It starts with this guy, and he says, <clears throat> I received a calling from God to go down to the market a block away from my house and get a drink and a snack. And then while purchasing it, I was, going, I was supposed to witness to the cashier. On my way to the market, I suddenly found myself on this boat to China. After one year on the boat and two years in China, I, thre- I trekked through the jungles of Africa for six months. Finally made it back to America, but in Arizona, on the side of the road hitchhiking. And then this guy picked me up, and he took me to Mexico. And I trudged through the desert of Mexico for three and a half years, finally making my way out and found myself in Texas. Then finally, finally, after six and a half years, two days, 11 hours, and 22 minutes, I walk into the market one block away from my house. I get a drink, and I get a snack, and I look at my reflection in the freezer door. My beard is grown. My clothes are torn and disheveled and dirty, and I'm thin. But I go to the cashier. I look him in the eye, and I say, I'm going to be praying for you. The cashier then looked me right back in the eye and said, looks like you're the one who needs prayer. The plan that God has for us is as much about the journey as it is the calling itself. We talk about the valleys of life, the mountaintop experiences, and the spiritual geography that defines and stirs us. The valleys of life are arid and hard The mountaintops are blessings and hope. But there's one other place that's seldom discussed. Perhaps we're in denial or choose to ignore this forbidden area due to fear of going back, or perhaps the memories are too hard to deal with. I'm talking about the pit. Most likely we've all been in one. I'll not read into scripture here too much as I will put myself in Joseph's sandals as should you. The Bible doesn't speak of Joseph's fear, but my eyes would have been wide with fear. My voice would have been hoarse from screaming. The feeling of abandonment and rejection, the heartbreaking thoughts and mind-numbing shock. These are the great-grandsons of Abraham, the sons of Jacob, carriers of the covenant to a generation of countless sands of the sea and stars in the sky. Jesus himself will appear in this family tree, the Bible's imperial family as dysfunctional as the state of California. His own brothers hated him. They stripped him of his coat. They took him, threw him in a pit, planned to kill him and blame an animal. It goes without saying that he didn't see this coming. No one can say, you should have planned for this. 
Now, some pits, it's true that you dig, a, you dig with the shovel of your own sin, and some you don't plan for. I'm sure you didn't see your pit coming. The unexpected loss of a loved one, the loss of a job. Perhaps you just feel forgotten and ignored. There's no easy way out of the pit. As we will see, and as you probably know from years of Sunday school class, Joseph's life got worse before it got better. Abandonment led to enslavement, then to a frame-up, and then to prison. Yet he never gave up. Bitterness never stuck its flag in his, in his soul and laid claim. Rage never metastasized, and heartbreak did not lead to self-pity. He not only survived, but he thrived. Joseph became the second most powerful man of his generation, and it's no hyperbole to say that he literally saved the world from starvation. How did he do it? How, though? How did he flourish? We don't have to guess. He, he tells us. Later on in the scripture, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result and to preserve many people. Joseph handcuffed himself to the wrist of God's plan and threw away the key. The plan that God had for him was greater than Joseph himself. There's nothing in this story that glosses over evil. There's bloodstains and tear stains and dirt and hatred and disgust everywhere. Joseph's heart was rubbed raw with the sandpaper of unfairness over and over and over again. And each time, God's plan redeemed that pain. The Hebrew word in this is weave. The evil they weave together, God was really weaving for good. The principal weaver controlling every thread and needle hole. He controls every king, pauper, every drop of rain, every molecule he weaves into history. And the other Hebrew word is translated as bring about. It's a construction term. And it describes the task of building a project. And you wonder, you wonder if your pain will ever end. Will the depression ever end? Will the pain ever stop? Will the heart ever heal? The pit is made of steep walls and filled with questions of doubt trying to drown you. Yes, deliverance is real. But it may take time. Have you cried your last tear? Received your last round of chemo? Is your marriage, unhappy marriage, going to be happy? I don't know. But I know that God has a plan for it. God does not guarantee the absence of struggle, not in this life, but he does pledge to weave and construct your pain for a higher purpose. And it may not be swift, Joseph was 17 years old when his brothers abandoned him. He was 37 when he saw them again, and it was another couple years after that that he saw his father. Here's the thing. The timing of it really doesn't matter. We get so bogged down with the timing, but the timing and the journey is part of God's plan for your life as much as, as, much as the, the end of the journey. 
the thing about the pit is no matter how bad things get, no matter how hopeless the abandonment, how broken the heart, the pit forces us to only look one way, up. To the weaver and to the architect. His plan will never leave you in the pit because the pit is part of the plan itself. Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver. The Ishmaelites were not likely to keep Joseph alive or not likely to keep him or as a slave. They wanted to use him to turn a profit in Egypt. He was used, abused, abandoned, and now a slave, stripped of everything, his name, his status, his family, gone in an instant. He was no one. Joseph arrived in Egypt with nothing. His occupation was despised by the clean-shaven Sphinx people. He had no credentials, no vocation, no family. He lost everything with, with the exception of one thing, God's plan for his life. The Bible says nothing of, J, of Joseph's education, intellect, or talents. But what the writer of Genesis is clear to mention is the plan over Joseph's life. He had no home, dignity, family, or friends, but he clearly clung to the plan. And God has a plan that he is actively weaving and constructing in your life. Even while you're wearing the heavy chains of addiction, God has a plan with your tear-stained pillow. God has a plan even in the midst of your sinning and in your weakest moments. And we all have an Egypt. School was my Egypt. Each day more foreign than the one before, dragged around hearing strange tongues and feeling out of place. I never could kick the thought that God has better plans for me than this place. But God had a plan for Joseph in Egypt, and as terrible as Egypt was, it was exactly where he needed to be, as was school for me. No matter how old you are, whether you're one or 1,000, or who you are, or where you are, or what you've done, God has a plan for you if you're his child. And if you are God's child, he saw you. He chose you. He placed you before he even formed the earth. You are a child of God. You were his choice, and his choice was not mandatory, compulsory, or enforced. Jesus went to the slave auction you were being sold at and bought you. That's God's plan. So don't get stuck and weighed down thinking that your struggles will last forever or waiting too long. It won't, and it's not. God's plan will come to fruition. Engrave his plan on your soul. Remember that when life goes belly up and you're suffering, God still has a plan. And that plan includes a perfect eternity. Beloved, never forget that you need Jesus more than you need your next breath. We are human, though, and we forget that. In Egypt, it seems to be so encompassing that we grow roots and become settled in this strange land, becomes home, 
We take our struggles and we let them define us. I am disabled. I am divorced. I am an addict. I make friends. I make money. I own a company. That's not who you are. Look out the window. Turn on the news. The carcasses of broken dreams and dead bodies line the streets. Wars rage and rapes go unpunished. This is not our home. And what you do is not who you are. You are a child of the Most High. And you're in the middle of his plan, headed for perfection. This is Egypt, not home. So the question is now, how do we stay grounded? We keep an eternal perspective. And God's plan close to our heart. There's a very untimely example Your company's laying off employees, and your boss calls you into his office. And as kind as he tries to be a layoff, it is what it is. And all of a sudden, years of hard work and devotion are stuck in a box tucked under your arm as you're walking out the door. How am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to tell my wife when I get home? Who's going to hire me? Terror and anxiety start ruling your thoughts. But then you remember the plan. The thing that I need most, I cannot lose. The pit is part of the plan. I am still a child of the great I am. My life is more than this life. These days are a swift wind, and God is not merely making something good out of this tragedy. He's using the tragedy itself for his glory and my good. Praise God. that's the key to survival in this life and in Egypt that you must keep an eternal perspective with an eternal focus on God's plan for you and not focus on the trinkets of this world it's better to lose a hundred jobs than to lose that most of life of our life is spent day to day with the to-do list and the daily grind And sometimes we stand on the mountaintop with like a wedding or a childbirth. Then sometimes the bottom drops out, the economy fails, the child passes away, the bad news coming from the doctor's mouth, and we fall into a pit. Some of us fall into a pit of abuse, of being ignored, the pit of unfairness and mistreatment. You fully expect a teenager who is abused and abandoned to be a bit defensive, don't you? Who would blame Joseph? Understandable, right? I mean, lives like this end up in gangs or in despair, not knowing right from wrong. This wasn't the plan, though. It says that the Lord was with Joseph and he was successful. He did not simply survive, but he prospered. Why? Because God was with him. Because God had a plan. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. His master saw that the Lord was with him. He succeeded because God was with him, period. He didn't grumble and complain, Oh, life is so hard. I'm a slave, and I don't deserve to be here. Life is so unfair. I hate this world. No. 
He stayed humble and he followed the plan that God had for him. His focus was eternal on what he had, not what he didn't have. God was to Joseph what a snowsuit is to a toddler. It covers them so much that they can't move. It keeps them warm. And so when your life, in your life, when have you complained about the unfairness of life and how cold people are instead of being humble and putting on the snowsuit? Because in your own version of Egypt, it feels foreign. You've never, you've never been alone before. Things seem so unfamiliar. Hopes are gone along with your family and friends. How do you stay focused on eternity? What did the psalmist say? He asked God, where can I go to get away from you? Where can I run from you? You're in heaven. You're in the grave. The sun is in the east and it settles in the west. Beyond the sea, there you would guide me. For Joseph, at the bottom of a dry pit, to the top of a save box, to the home of a foreigner, God was there. And you? The rehab clinic? The ICU? The empty motel room? We live sometimes as though there is no God. And the only strength we have is our own, with no real solutions for the turmoil in our lives. Let's look at Moses for a second. He asked, how am I going to provide for these people? How will we defend ourselves against the enemies? How can we survive? Moses had some really big and pressing needs, and God answered him by giving him a staff. David was facing an entire army and a giant by himself, and God gave him a rock. All the disciples had was a net. All Noah had was an axe. And all Paul had was a pen. You don't need more to do more. You need what God gives you to do the impossible. The Lord your God is with you and he is mighty to save. His plan for you, it, he he takes great delight in you, his child. And staying eternally focused pivots on repeating the eternal promises of God and feeling God's presence in your life has little to do with your current mood. God is near you whether you're happy or not. And sometimes you have to take your feelings and kick them out to the curb along with your lying thoughts. Because the scripture is truth and your soul is thirsty for it. Bathe in it. Drink it. Stick to the plan. Next up in our hero's life, we find him in jail falsely accused. Now most likely none of us will ever be behind bars because of false accusations. Well, maybe our pastor, if he spends any more play money. <laughs> but we'll find ourselves at some point in a prison, incarcerated by bad health, battling depression, and locked up by dementia, 
chained by the bars of addiction, constantly trying to escape, thinking that you have the key and putting it in the lock and turning it and turning it and turning it over and over again, but the lock never unlatches. Why does God permit imprisonment? Since the fall of man barred from Eden, sentenced to a life of hard labor, Sometimes the prison is there because we built one ourselves and stuck ourselves in it. But sometimes the prison is not our fault. John was exiled. Paul and Peter both served times up the river. Paul wrote epistles. John saw heaven. Peter saw an angel. Prison is prison, whether you've locked yourself in it or not. The point of it here again is that it's part of the plan. Then you might find yourself in your own little prison right now. Stop complaining. Latch on to the plan and be a blessing. You're probably thinking easy for you to say, right? Oh, I wish it was. And forgive me. Beloved, I don't mean to sound incompassionate about your loss, your empty pantry, your lonely nights, your poor health. These are huge burdens and struggles, and facing them I know is hard. I'm dealing with them right now. But these struggles are not pointless either. God is not sometimes sovereign. He's always sovereign. He's not sporadically triumphant. The prison in which you find yourself may bring doubt, but it does not baffle God. Joseph being falsely accused, thrown into prison, and from a human point of view, the enemy had just won. The enemy had Joseph exactly where he wanted him. But from a spiritual point of view, he was exactly where God planned for him to be. Trials, biblically speaking, refines us and purifies our soul. So consider your circumstances. Your low bank account, no hope of a job, bad health. And if you see your troubles as nothing more than hassles, you'll grow bitter and you'll grow angry. But if you see your troubles as part of God's plan for refinement and maturity, then even the smallest little hiccup has eternal treasure. And these are trials we face every day. We get stressed out. We get sick. There's a broken car, even our sinuses. But sometimes these trials put us where we need to be to bring glory for God. For example, the baker and the cupbearer. They asked Joseph about their dreams. Let's pause for a moment here and just think about this this situation for a minute. Joseph has every reason to not share the interpretations. He doesn't have to. Because the last time Joseph spoke of dreams, he ended up in a pit. Besides, only half of this interpretation was going to be good news. But he didn't think twice. Instead of being haunted by the past like I would have been with PTS, he was bold. Joseph was refined by the pain of his trials. God hasn't forgotten. 
that you're in prison, in the midst of your trials, he's fully involved. He sees the needs of tomorrow and uses the circumstances of today to bring about his plan for tomorrow. Joseph didn't face on woe is me, this is not my fault, why am I in here? It's every man for himself in here. He didn't say that. He focused on his calling, on what God was having him do. He followed the plan. And God is at work in each of us, whether we know it or not, whether we want it or not, whether we like it or not. He takes no pleasure in life being hard. He doesn't get excited when when we're suffering, but he does delight in our growth and our maturity. No one said that the road of the gospel to Jesus would be easy. In fact, it was said the opposite. Jesus said the opposite, and then he picked you up and he put you on the road, not so that you would have a terrible suffering life, but so that you would meet him at the end of it. For Joseph, a stop on that long and winding road led to Pharaoh, the king, the most powerful man in the world, and again with the dreams. With more reason to not interpret the dream and good reason to not even mention God, To an unbeliever. A counselor might interject in Joseph's life here and and say, listen, your dreams is why your family disowned you and hated you. And now you're in prison. It all started with the dreams. Perhaps you should keep that gift in the wrapping paper. Nope, not Joseph. He unwrapped it like a kid with a poorly wrapped bicycle. Not only did he bravely interpret the dream, he mentioned the name of God to a man who thought he was God. This man could have had Joseph killed for that reason. But Joseph did not think twice. He said, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do, what faith he had in this time of limbo, the proverbial rock and a hard place. If he told him about God sending the dream, he could die. If not, he could have gone back to prison and eventually died there. Again, I'm not trying to read too much into things here, but it's also not too much of a stretch to see the dilemma. Especially him knowing what happened to the the baker and cupbearer. What about your rock in a hard place? Stuck between choices. You're darned if you do and you're darned if you don't. Moses and the Israelites found themselves in just such a state. The Red Sea was in front of them. The huge Egyptian army was behind them, stuck with no way out. What did Moses say to them? Don't be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. With death. Moments away, the slaughtering of thousands upon thousands of people. Moments away, his advice is to be still and wait for salvation. The invisible hand of God was working to part the Red Sea 
just because you can't see the hand of God working in your life doesn't mean it's not working. Just because you can't see God in your life doesn't mean he's not there. We humans assume the worst, and so we, we, we tend to fight to keep control, and then we panic when we lose what little control we thought we even had. But we need to wait, and we need to see the plan of salvation, for he is working miracles in our lives that we don't even know. And Joseph was bold, and he was brave, but he had no reason to be. And Pharaoh was worried and anxious and timid, and he had no reason to be. Joseph was from the country. Pharaoh was from the city. Reverse that. Pharaoh was from the palace, and Joseph was from the prison. And then Joseph dropped the bomb. He's going to have seven years of famine. And it would be worse than the Great Depression ever was here. The Nile would have been a trickling stream. The fertile fields would have been a dust bowl. So he's not just hitting Pharaoh with the truth and the bad news as well, but he's saying that God had a plan. And Joseph was right there at the right place at the right time and seeing the plan. And to keep the covenant to glorify God. All of his life came down to this one moment, the broken promises, the betrayals, the hatred, the abductions, the abandonment, the abuse, the unjustly sentenced to prison, all coming to the climax of the story, the blessing on the other side. The one who had no name and no family and no friends, he had no money and no worth, would now be prime minister. The road to the palace, it was not quick, it was not painless. It was ugly and it was long. But God used for good what man meant for evil. Restoring to Joseph tenfold what was taken. Your past betrayals and the anger and the tragedies someday, maybe in this life, but most certainly in the next, the scorecard with all the tallies and the hurts will be a distant memory and you will be restored tenfold what the enemy has taken. That is the plan. Joseph began the day in jail and ended it in the palace. But is God only good when the outcome is good? When the cancer is in remission, we say God is good. When the pay raise come, we say God is good. When the blessings come, we say God is good. But why do we not say God is good in the midst of loss? Or at the bottom of the pit? God is not only good when the baby is in the cradle, but God is also good when the person is in the coffin. In the unemployment line, as well as on the award stage. In the days of recession, as much as in the days of plenty, when life crumbles at your feet and we get angry at God and question him that he must love everyone but me, 
If only I had more faith. If only I prayed more. If only, if only, if only. Things would have been different. If we were in Joseph's sandals, perhaps we would have thought the same. Even for a moment or two, have some doubt. Because listen, both the time of plenty and the time of famine, both of them were decreed by God. His ways are not our ways. And we do not have to understand. We need simply to follow the plan for he is good, period. In all things, he is good. And Joseph had just cause to be ungrateful. Are you ungrateful for your circumstances? Bitterness is, is, is the worst kind of cancer because it spreads so quickly and it has such deep roots and not easily removed. The flowers will never be pretty enough. The food never good enough. The bed never comfortable enough. You'll grind your teeth all the way to the grave. But a grateful heart, on the other hand, focuses less on what you lack and more on what you have that you don't deserve. And God's plan, it doesn't just include his glory and your good. It includes healing. What about those who hurt you? The family that failed you. Their early years were hard ones because the people that should have cared for you did not. Healing starts with forgiveness. Showing grace where it is not deserved. And there is no room in God's plan for bitterness. Forgiveness is hard and impossible unless you first have been forgiven. But the plan of the gospel and the gospel is there. And it's very apparent in Joseph's life. Listen, falsely accused, condemned, thought dead by his family, only to sit at the right hand of the throne. Jesus, Jesus is calling you who are weak and heavy laden to like Joseph sit at the banquet table at the person that you betrayed. Your seat at the banquet table is Judas's seat. And your seat is there with your name tag on it because of grace that you don't deserve. Every single event in your life is designed to draw you towards God's plan for your life and eternity. There will be valleys, there will be mountains, and there will be pits. We will lose jobs, we will be falsely accused. 
We will be abandoned, but we will not fall because God works everything for his glory, for his plan, by his grace, and for our healing. And lastly, it needs to be noted, the conversation between Joseph and his brothers, because he and he began and he ended his own crisis with acknowledgement of God's plan. God, he said, God sent me before you to preserve life for these two years, the famine in the land. And there's still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you. How would you describe your crisis? The economy stinks. The person I live with is cranky and never cleans. The bills are too high and take all my money. Do you recite your woes more naturally than you do your blessings? It's no wonder life is tough. You're assuming that God isn't in the crisis. You're assuming that God's not enough and your bank account is. Don't fall into idol worship. Trust God's plan. Don't let your crisis paralyze you. And don't let Egypt overwhelm you. And we'd be foolish to think that only evil happens to evil people. But we'd be just as foolish to think that evil wins the day. Because the Bible echoes and echoes and echoes with a steady scream and shout of faith that you don't need a quick fix for your challenges. You need Jesus. He turns evil meant for you to good. And God can redeem every pit, including the one that you're in right now. Your family needs a Joseph. A strong link of faith. Your generation needs a Joseph because the famine in this current Egypt is really bad. Be bold like Joseph and do not fear death. Share the gospel not through grumbling and complaining about the current events and sighing about how great things used to be. Be humble. Trust in your God. Will you be a Joseph? Will you follow the plan? Let's pray. Thank you so much, God, in heaven for giving us the heroes of the Bible that we can look to for inspiration, for enlightenment, for conviction, and most of all, for courage. But you and you alone are our God, and it's in you and you alone that we put our trust. Let us renew our minds and our hearts and our souls this day forward as we're opening the door to the Easter season, let us have renewed focus upon you and your plan for us. 
that we may bring you glory for anything else that we do in life is pointless. Be our God and let us be your children. In Jesus' name, amen.